Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. You also find the text beginning on page 6 in your bulletins. It's all there in the, in the bulletin. We're going to look at a lot of text today. Basically, what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through the biblical text. And so you'll want to have it in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, open up your bulletins and we'll want to track along. Sometimes I'll read the scripture. Sometimes I'll just point to it. So you'll want to have it opened. And we're just going to let the text do the talking as we look at the life of King Saul. And unfortunately, it's not a good one. And the Bible is full of wise men and women, and it's full of foolish ones. The book of Proverbs urges us to be like the wise man and not the fool. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 10, verse 8, The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And then later, that same chapter, verse 23, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. Well, fools despise wisdom. Proverbs 19 says it's inevitable that a man's foolishness will always lead them to ruin. We'll see this in our passage today. We'll get an up-close and personal look at one of the biggest fools in the Bible, King Saul. Sadly, his life is like a portrait of a fool. And like any portrait, there are different elements to making the portrait what it is. In this portrait, we'll see four ways Saul acts the part of a fool. Four ways. If you're taking notes, number one, we'll see a fool fails to wait. Number two, a fool fails to repent. Number three, a fool fails to act. Number four, a fool fails to seek God. A fool fails to wait, to repent, to act, and to seek God. That's our outline. That's where we're headed this morning as we look at the life of King Saul. So let's start with the first portrait of a fool. A fool fails to wait. A fool doesn't wait on God. Look at chapter 13, verses 1 and following. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Let's stop there for a bit. The Hebrew text of that first verse is difficult because the numbers are actually missing from our earliest manuscripts. There are a number of ways we can interpret what the author was trying to say numerically there. One possible reading is that the text is telling us how old Samuel is and how, how long he reigned it as king. Well, the ESV reading indicates that there's been a period of one year where Saul was in the process of becoming king, and now he's reigned for a couple of years. 
Either way, either way, we take the numbers, different translations of them, different things. The point is, Saul is king. There was a time before he was a king. There's a time now since he's been king. And Israel is dealing with the Philistines at Gibeah, which back in chapter 10, Samuel had commanded them to defeat. Now there's an army ready to go. It's an army ready to to fight. But surprisingly, it was Jonathan and not his dad who initiated the long-anticipated battle against the Philistines. Did you notice that? Well, they, they win. They defeat them. The rest of the Philistines hear of the defeat, and, and now they're getting ready for, for the battle. All the Philistines are getting ready for battle. So verse 3, Saul blows the trumpet. He makes a general call to Israel to gather at Gilgal per Samuel's instructions back in chapter 10. And they wait there for seven days. This is important. They wait for seven days for Samuel to return so that he could offer the sacrifices and give them direction. That's what they were told to do in 1 Samuel chapter 10. But verse 5, the Philistines, they gather 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore. This is the most chariots we see in the entire Old Testament gather in one battle. It doesn't take a math genius for us to see that there's a problem here. Saul had 3,000 chosen men. The Philistines have 30,000 chariots alone. And this is a problem. So what do the Israelites do? Well, they, they run and they hide caves in holes, in rocks, in tombs, and in cisterns. It's the ultimate game of hide and seek. Basically, they hid everywhere. Their win at Gibeah provoked the Philistines. They've awakened a monster. The Philistines get everybody together. In verse 8, even with the threat looming, Saul waited the seven days appointed by Samuel. Or at least it looks like he's, he's waited on to the seventh day. But now it's the equivalent of 5 p.m. Thursday afternoon. Where's Samuel? It's the seventh day at the end of the day. People are scattering. People are scared. You're losing the army. You can almost hear Saul. Uh, what, 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 where's Samuel? Where, where is he? Where, where is that guy? Is he in the camp? Is he at the gate? Is he on the way? Uh, any news on Samuel? Does anyone have a live location pin for where Samuel is? Where is he? And with each passing moment, the, the Philistine advantage, it, it grew because the Israelite army is scattering and the Philistines are, are getting their chariots and they're, they're getting everybody ready for battle. It must have been hard. It must have been hard for Saul to wait. I mean, every second after 5 p.m. must have been excruciating. But he couldn't wait any longer. He didn't wait any longer. Verse 9, Saul asks for the burnt offering and offers it up. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, this is a huge deal because who was supposed to offer the sacrifices? Well, only the Levitical priests. Saul rejected God's way of worship rather than waiting on the Lord. He distorted God's way. 
Can we really blame him for this? Samuel was late. The army is scattering. No doubt Saul felt the pressure. I mean, we can sympathize with Saul, can't we? I mean, it would be tempting to take matters into our own hands. What happens? Verse 10, he offered up the sacrifice. Verse 10, behold, as soon as the sacrifice was finished, here's Samuel. (laughs) Samuel appears. Saul does the sacrifice at 5 p.m. Samuel shows up at 5.02 Oh, so close. It's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic. Just a couple measly minutes. Saul's not hiding what he's done. Samuel comes. He seems rather relieved that Samuel's there. He greets the most Samuel. uh, You're you're here. We had no idea when you were coming. So I stepped in. I covered your back and I offered up the sacrifices. Don't worry. You can thank me later. Took care of it all. Why don't you come join in? Let's take care of the peace offerings now. But Samuel has no time for pleasantries, does he? There's no hug or quick catch up, no chai time, no greetings, only a question. Saul, what have you done? We're reminded of God's question to Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, desperation leads to disobedience. A fool fails to wait on God's timing and takes matters into their own hands. We don't like waiting, do we? We don't like waiting on the traffic. We don't like waiting to find a parking space. We don't like waiting for our paycheck. We don't like waiting in line at the hypermarket. We don't like waiting until we've stopped driving to look at our phones. We don't like to wait. Waiting is hard. Waiting for a spouse. Waiting for a child. Waiting for a job. Waiting for medical test results. Waiting for healing. It can be agonizing. We don't like to wait. It's hard when what we want or even what we think we need doesn't come in the time we think it should. What do you do when you have to wait? Do you rehearse God's commands and promises and believe his word? Or do you take matters into your own hands? In a sense, in a very real sense, the Christian life is a life of waiting. While all of creation groans, we wait for a better day. This is not how life should be. This is not how life will be. This is not our final destination. We're waiting until the day we're home with Jesus. Now, friend, if you're waiting, don't give up waiting on the Lord. Don't give up. His timing is different than ours. It may seem like his clock is ticking just a little bit too slow. But God is not bound to a clock. He created time. And one of the reasons God created time is so that we would marvel at his glory as he brings about 
his will precisely in the very moment that he intends to. His will is never off his divine schedule. But a fool thinks he knows better than God does. A wise man is confident God knows best. Well, how will Saul respond to Samuel's rebuke? Oh, Saul, what have you done? Well, he's not going to respond well. That's the second part of our portrait of a fool. Number two, a fool fails to repent. A fool fails to repent of their sin. Saul, what have you done? Verse 11, I offered a sacrifice when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at mismatch. Now, what's Saul's response? Or what's Saul's response? So Samuel, Samuel, I had no choice. The Philistines were coming. The Philistines were, 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 were gathering. Did you, did you hear about their chariots? You were gone. But the chariots, 30,000 of them were coming forward. And, and Saul plays the blame game. Just like Adam and Eve. God says, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat of? And Adam said, the woman. She did it. Remember, God, I didn't ask for her. You said, take a nap. I took a nap, woke up, and there she was. It was her fault. And God, because you gave her to me, ultimately, it's your fault. Aaron, who made this golden calf? Well, I, I don't know. I just threw the gold into the fire, and out came this golden calf. It was incredible. You should have been there. Oh, we've all played the blame game, haven't we? Nobody has to teach us how to play. Well, Saul was playing the game. The people were scattering from me, Samuel. It was their fault. And, and you, Samuel, that you there is emphatic. You, you, you didn't come on the day you promised. It's your fault you couldn't keep track of time. Get a watch that works. And the Philistines, they were coming. They were after me. It's their fault for being so strong. And then listen to this. Verse 12, I had not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This language is laughable. All this was happening, and so I, I, I forced myself to do it. I mean, think about that. It wasn't even my fault. Look at all those others. And even for me, I, I didn't want to do it. I had, to, I had to force myself to do it. You know, you're on a diet and that delicious piece of Oreo cheesecake is there at the party. It's the last piece there and you feel bad for the host. You don't want the host to be embarrassed. And so you force yourself to grab that cheesecake. In the name of loving the host, you eat that cheesecake. You forced yourself. It wasn't your fault. I didn't have another option. I didn't even want to do it. You know, a fool passes blame onto others and fails to repent of their own sin. Now, I'm not saying eating cheesecake is sin. I would never say that. <laughs> eating cheesecake is a wonderful gift from the Lord. But you see what, what Saul is saying here. It was their fault. It was their fault. It was, it was your fault. And I, I, I had to force myself to do that. A fool passes blame. What should Saul have done here? We should have said to Samuel and to God, look at what I have done. I have done this. 
I rushed. I doubted. I was afraid. I sinned. I need forgiveness. A wise man owns his sin. That's the difference between worldly grief and godly sorrow. Saul was always concerned about his circumstances and not about his God. It's easy to blame shift. You could laugh about Saul's blame shifting, but it's a temptation for all of us. Maybe there's some sin right now in your life and you've pointed to a person or maybe you've pointed to your circumstances as the blame. Intimacy in your marriage is struggling, so you look at pornography. You blame your spouse, their fault. Finances are tight. Your boss is cheating you. Maybe you haven't been paid for a while, and so you cheat the company. You think, well, I'm entitled to it anyway. They put me in this position. Or your children were unruly. They wouldn't listen, and so out of anger, out of wrath, you scream at them. You lay your hands on them, but you say, oh, if they just obeyed, it's their fault their fault for my anger. Oh, friend, hear me say this clearly. No one and no circumstances ever forces us to be disobedient. It's never someone else's fault for our own sin. A fool passes blame, fails to repent. Here's what you should do if you find yourself in sin. Maybe someone rebukes you, or maybe you come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Here's what you should do. You should repent of it. You should resist passing on the blame. Pram Samson read this for us earlier in our assurance of pardon. <clears throat> First John 1, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, through Christ's death on the cross, through him taking our punishment on the cross, we can be forgiving. We can be forgiving and we can be forgiven of our sins. We turn to him. We stop blaming others. We go to God for forgiveness. This is what Saul should have done. And Saul receives no sympathy from Samuel. Verse 13, Saul, oh Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Now these were strong words. Saul, you've done foolishly. The word fool, that's not my word. This is the word that Samuel uses of Saul. Saul, you've been foolish. Now, of course, trusting God in this situation wouldn't have been easy. It's a lot of chariots. It's a lot of danger. I mean, feel the weight of this. These, these soldiers, these, these chariots, they were staring you in the face. And your men are running. <laughs> you, you, your soldiers are running, and you only had 3,000 to start with. But this is life, isn't it? In Redeemer Church, following God in obedience is never an easy thing to do. But things aren't what they seem. Sinful disobedience is always more foolish. Than following our holy, righteous and perfect God. We may feel like we have to act. But our sin is always more foolish than trusting God. 
There are always consequences for disobedience. In our text, they are massive. The end of verse 13, Saul, if only you had obeyed, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now God is gonna find another king. God's gonna find a king who's not perfect, but a king who will repent of his sin, a man after God's own heart. I wonder what Saul was thinking when he heard these words in this moment. I wonder if we could put our selves in the place of Saul. What was Saul thinking when he heard these words of judgment from Samuel? And the text doesn't tell us. It just kind of moves on. What was he feeling? I mean, did he even care? Did he Did he understand the the weight or the gravity of the situation? And what a heartbreaking moment. If only he followed God after his sin, if only he repented. Well, there's a third part of our portrait of a fool in our passage. Number three, a fool fails to act. We've seen a fool fails to wait on God. We've seen a fool fails to repent. A fool fails to act by faith. In verses 15 through 18, even with the premature sacrifice, only one-fifth of the original army remains. There's just a few hundred soldiers against thousands. Philistines are raiding. Israelites don't even have weapons. Look at verse 19. There are no blacksmiths in Israel. Somehow the Philistines have a monopoly on all metal workers. All Israel has are farm tools, axes, sickles, Israelites are taking spoons and spatulas into a battle against 30,000 chariots. I'm no military strategist, but this sounds like a horrible strategy, doesn't it? Verse 22, Saul and Jonathan are the only ones with a sword. And what are they doing? Well, chapter 14, verse 2, Saul's in the outskirts of Gibeah at a pomegranate pomegranate cave. He's hiding out. He's far from the action. This time not hiding in the baggage, but in a cave. It's Jonathan who goes and he doesn't tell dad. Did you notice that? We don't know why. Maybe he thinks his father won't approve. Maybe he knows his father is scared. He just goes. He thinks, let's see what God might do. Notice who's with Saul at the cave. Verse three, he's with the group, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. Now, why do we have Ahijah's family tree listed here? Now, I don't think it's an accidental detail. Think about the names listed, the son of Ahitab, brother of Ichabod. Remember, Ichabod means no glory. The son of Phinehas, he was the man who, along with his brother, stole meat they weren't supposed to eat. They were committing sexual immorality with the women at the tabernacle entrance. The son of Eli, of course, Eli was the priest whose line would be judged and excluded. The narrator seems to be telling us, here are your leaders. Here are those sitting with Saul hiding in the cave. These are the the priests who've been rejected. Here's the king who's now been rejected. Saul hides, Jonathan goes. 
He and his armor bearer pass through a rocky crag, kind of a rocky cliffs on both sides. Basically, they're going through a narrow valley, steep rocks on both sides. The names of the crags are the equivalent of slippery and thorny. The point, this is a very difficult pass through and difficult climb up. The leaders are hiding and Jonathan is attempting something impossible. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or, I love this faith, or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Now Jonathan has courage. His armor bearer has courage. And they act in the face of fear. It's an act of faith because there are no grounds for optimism here. Dad, the king was hiding The geography wasn't on their side. The Philistines are sprinkled out everywhere. But hey, uh, let's go. Let's go, the two of us, because the Lord could save by many or the Lord could save by few. Either way, we know the Lord could do it. And notice Jonathan's words. It may be. It may be that the Lord will work for us. This is no prosperity gospel. This is no twisting of God's arm. Even when we're faithful to God, we don't know if God is going to deliver in the same way we want him to. Who knows what Yahweh will do? We have no idea. Jonathan doesn't presume to know, but he knew that Yahweh could save by many or by few, and that was enough for him. You see, the prosperity gospel says, get more faith and you'll have victory. But that mindset is prideful because we don't know whether God will grant healing or whether God will give victory. It's not an act of weakness to say, maybe, maybe God will grant victory. To say perhaps isn't a sign of floundering faith. We can't confuse faith with arrogance. Faith doesn't dictate to God what must happen. We don't rule God. We don't get to name it and claim it that somehow by speaking it in faith, we can speak it into reality. God is not some genie in a lamp where our wish is his command. Faith knows its ignorance. That's why it's faith. That's why it's faith. That's why we go by faith and not by sight. We don't know the future, but we know who holds the future in his hands. And so we press on. Well, Jonathan followed God's leading and went by faith to do an impossible task. Well, everything worth doing for God is a step of faith. Your back is up against the wall. The the odds are insurmountable, but you go even when you don't know what the result will be. Maybe especially when you don't know what the result will be. That's faith. When we think about William Wilberforce fighting for the end of slavery in England, William Carey taking the gospel to India, Adoniram Judson setting sail for Burma, Samuel Zwamer off to Bahrain and the Arabian Peninsula with impossible obstacles ahead and even people telling them not to go because of earthly obstacles, they went. I think of Carl and Barb Sherbeck. Almost all of you probably have 
no idea who they are, but I've known them for about 13 years. They are heroes of the faith here in the UAE. They moved here back in the 1960s. They lived here for decades. Now in their late 80s, they're back home. But I saw them in this very room, right up at the front here on the side, just two weeks ago. And I was able to give Carl a hug. And maybe the, the last time I get to greet these two heroes and old friends. I thanked him again for, for his starting, and the, the two of them starting Arabic and English-speaking churches in Elaine, Abu Dhabi, and Dubai. See, the spiritual Christian history in these cities can all trace back to the Sherbeck's planting churches. Now, the first churches in our city here were started by them. You know, today we have many churches and we have a growing city. We have old Dubai and we have new Dubai. The, the Sherbeck's came before there was even old Dubai. There was no old Dubai. It was oldest Dubai. And they came by faith here to a desert land with the hope of planting churches to the glory of God. <clears throat> I think of Blaine and Kelly Boyd when I think of acting by faith. They planted a thriving church in Elaine. They worked hard to get it off the ground. Why would they ever want to leave? It doesn't make any sense. But then one day another pastor here asked them to consider going to a place where we can't find a healthy church. Kuwait City. Blaine and Kelly said, why not us? Why shouldn't we go? Kelly hadn't even visited yet when they said, here we are, God. Use us, take us, send us. I mean, it was a crazy decision. They don't know how it'll end up. They're still working on visas and, and all kinds of other logistics. They have no idea how the story will go or how it will end, but they're going by faith. A fool hides in a cave when they're asked to do a great thing by faith. But real faith doesn't need all the answers before it acts. We just go. We just go because we have a God who's with us. Now, for some of you, the radical thing will be to move to a place like Kuwait or to Kochi, India, and to, to help plant a church, to get a job there, to, to settle in, to do ministry. Maybe it's to go back to your home country and start some ministry. Maybe some big step of faith for you. How will you use your life for God? How will you not waste this life? Oh, Redeemer Church, Redeemer Church, do big things for God. Don't settle for a small life. Do big things for God. Well, if that sounds a bit crazy to you to do one of those things, then start with today. Because one big act of faith starts with a million small acts of faith starting today. How about sharing the gospel with that friend you've been delaying with because you think there's no way they'll ever believe and you're, you're a bit scared or you're doubting. You've held back. How about getting up early and reading your Bible and praying before work every single morning? How about writing that note to that family member telling them you love them? Or parents, parents of teens, Maybe you've been waiting to have that difficult conversation with your teen. How about when they come home from this retreat, you initiate that conversation and take a step of faith, do the right thing. 
Read that book. Start learning that language. Apply for the golf training center next year to be trained. Ask someone to disciple you. Maybe that's scary, but ask someone just to sit with you and to study the Bible with you and to pray for you. And pray about moving to a place like Kuwait or Kochi or back to your home country or to some other far-off place. It might make no earthly sense to those around you. This is the case for Jonathan. makes no sense what he's doing. It's crazy. What Saul was doing made a bit more sense. 30,000 chariots, I'm going to go to the cave. Jonathan's faith was a radical faith. So bold it doesn't make sense. Even the sign he proposes is a bit nuts. Look at verse 8. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Hey, rather than surprising the Philistines, I know a surprise attack is usually good, but let's not surprise them. When we get close, why don't we, why don't we alert them that we're here? Okay, that's the plan. Let's alert them when we get close. Let's see their reaction. That'll be the sign to us. If they chase us, we'll take that as a sign. Let's run. If they'll invite us up for some chai and biscuits, then that's it. Let's go and let's fight. Well, they reveal themselves, verse 11. The Philistines are up there and they're looking down at these two guys. They mock them. Look, look, uh, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. You know, it's just two guys. Certainly they thought, oh, those, those guys, they're, they're no threat to us. They, they got nothing on us. <laughs> yeah, sure, guys. Why don't, why don't you come on up? And Jonathan says, that's it. It's, it's go time. It's, it's fighting time. And they rock climb that steep hill. And when they get to the top, what happens? Well, the text says the two of them defeat 20 men. Verse 15, it causes a panic in the camp, chaos, the earthquakes. Saul's watchman sees the Philistines running away. It literally says they were melting. Somehow, Jonathan and his armor bearers defeat. It, it, it brings us such a, such a chaos there in, in, in the land of the Philistine army. They were melting. They were turning into water and it was running everywhere. They were, they were spreading all over the place. Saul hears the news. He doesn't know what's happening. He, had, he hadn't even noticed his son's absence. He panics. He asks for the ark of God. Maybe as a good luck charm, then he decides against it. Verse 22, the hiding Israelites arrive and they win the battle. So somehow, remember the Lord could save by many. The Lord could save by few. And he saves Saves Israel. They win. There's victory. But before the people could celebrate, we have another problem. They should be celebrating. Jonathan has a bold faith. God gives him victory. But instead, we'll see one last part to our portrait of a fool in King Saul. A fool fails to seek God. That's the last point this evening. Number four, a fool fails to seek God. Now, another way to say it would be this. A fool is content with mere religion instead of a relationship with God. A fool is content, maybe even celebrates, maybe even rejoices, maybe even places their faith in religion instead of a relationship. Well, now at this point in the passage, this episode is basically over. It's done. What we have now is a supplementary account of our story. These Last verses fill in the gaps for us. It's a flashback. Hebrew narrative often does this. It'll tell you the whole story a little quick, a little quicker, and then it'll back up a little bit and just kind of fill in some of the gaps for us. And the first thing we notice is how the last section ends. 
And this next section begins. Look at verse 23 again. The Lord saved Israel that day. And then look at the beginning of verse 24. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. God was bringing victory on the one hand. Why were they hard-pressed? Well, the rest of the text tells us, in the midst of the fighting, Saul does something. There was confusion in the Philistines' camp. God was working to bring about victory, but Saul thought that God needed a little extra help. And so he declared a vow of judgment for on anyone who ate before evening in total victory. So he made a, an oath, made a vow. If anyone, anyone eats before evening, before there's total victory, there, there's this, this judgment of death on him. He's probably not worried about the men stuffing themselves too much. It looks like he's trying to strike a deal with God, twist God's arm. Remember, rabbit foot theology. If we get religious, if we do these religious actions, well, God will give us victory. And there's irony in his choice of words. One of the choice of words of the text there, chapter 13, Israel was hard-pressed because the Philistines were after them. Now here, Israel is hard-pressed because of Saul, their own king. They're hard-pressed because they're hungry. I mean, try fighting a war on an empty stomach. I don't know about you, but I can't even think clearly on an empty stomach, much less fight an epic battle without eating. And how about fighting a war with farm tools? You're hungry, you got spoons and spatulas and axes. I mean, this is crazy. It's, it's, it's one thing to have farm tools. It's another thing to be hungry. But look at verses 25 and 26. It's another thing to fight with farm tools, to fight when you're hungry and to fight when there's sweet and succulent honey dripping all around you. It was raining honey. Honey was everywhere, but it was honey that the warriors couldn't eat. But verse 27, Saul's son, Jonathan, oh no, he didn't hear about the vow. He sees the honey. He sees it as a gift from God. And so he, he, he takes it on, the, on, on his staff there and he eats it. He's got renewed energy. He's, he's good to go. He's good to fight. And Jonathan missed the memo. He's rebuked. And he realizes how ridiculous this is. I mean, why did dad do this? would have been better to just let the soldiers eat. Now, verse 31, miraculously, the Israelites still win. The people are faint. It's a 30-kilometer walk from Mishmash to Aijalon, but at least now they can eat. Well, not an excuse for sin, but they're so hungry they disregard God's law. In the frantic frenzy of feasting, they disregarded God's law to not eat meat with the blood in it. This was a law of God from back in the days of Noah. You find it in the book of Leviticus. What they were to do was to put the meat on stones and to, to, to drain the blood first and then to eat together. What's going to happen now? Well, Saul gets religious again. He's called a fast. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Now he builds an altar. This is his first altar. The text is clear. First altar he builds. He builds it where the animals can, can now be slaughtered. Still no repentance. Altar building, fasting. But someone else had to remind Saul of God. Verse 36, the priest, probably Ahijah, the high priest, said, let us draw near to God here. 
This was a polite way of suggesting to Saul, uh, perhaps we could consult with God before acting on your plans. Oh, but it's too late. Verse 37. Saul inquires of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into our hand? But God did not answer them. It's an incredibly sad verse, isn't it? What a horrible place to be. Silence. Saul's response to God's silence, still no repentance. Instead, he wants to come to the bottom of who ate the honey. It's got to be someone else's fault. It was embarrassing to him. He's the king and God's not answering him. Let's see who did it. Even if it's my son, Jonathan, he will die. And all this was figured out by Urim and Thummim. It's not entirely clear how this worked, but it was... Uh, two objects, probably a dark stone and a lighter stone. They were kept in the, the priest's ephod, the priest's pocket, and God often guided the priests through their use. It was a bit like casting lots. We don't know why Saul divided the lots between himself and Jonathan on the one hand and all the rest of the Israelites on the other hand. Maybe he wanted to make it clear to everyone that he was guiltless. But the lots were cast, the two stones, Jonathan and Saul, were taken. Then it fell on Jonathan. And Saul asks that, that question, you know, what have you done? I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff. Here I am. I will die. Now that sarcasm is, is a bit sharp and cutting. Honey eating. Yes, Dad, I ate the honey guilty as charged. I'll take the death sentence for my crime. Clearly, I deserve death. Saul says, yep, that's right. Today, today my son will die. When we read this, we're thinking, what in the world? What, what, what's happening here? Saul made a rash oath, and now he's ready to kill his son because of it. And guess what? What happens? Saul, the king, ready to kill his son to keep the oath. What happens? Well, the people, Israel, gang up on him, and Israel as a whole stops their king. They say, King Saul, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? You can't kill him. He's the Savior. He's just saved us. Not one hair from his head shall fall to the ground. Verse 35 this is the guy who saved us. Well, the people knew better than their king. They realized it was more ridiculous to kill their savior over a ridiculous vow than to follow through with it. Well, friends, what should Saul have done? Saul should have repented every step of the way. He just digs a, a deeper grave. He should have repented. He should have taken the blame. He should have exonerated his son. He should have trusted God in his trials. He should have resisted killing Jonathan to save face. He should have rejected the religion of making vows, of calling fasts, of building altars. I mean, did you notice that? Right, remember we talked about Saul being tall, dark, and handsome. He was strong. And look at the religious things he's doing. Fasting, altar building, vows, these seem real spiritual. On the outside, you, you can look at Saul and go, wow, look at our king. This is a spiritual guy. He's doing all these religious things. 
But we never, ever see Saul truly pursue a relationship with God. Well, the passage ends, ends with some fighting, some victories. But there, verse 52, I think is telling of Saul's life. It's a real subtle hint. He kept fighting against the Philistines. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Saul always tried to attach him to the strong man. He recruited a strong army. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is telling. The text emphasizes that Saul was concerned about outward appearance, human strength, religion. He never turned to God for a relationship. A fool looks to mere religious observances and rejects a relationship with God. See, ultimately, Israel didn't need a king. It didn't need chariots. It didn't need 30,000 soldiers or a strong man. The Lord would eventually deliver Israel through a lot less than that. Then a thousand years later, the Lord would deliver Israel and all who would believe, not through many, not through a few, but through one man, the God-man. Jesus Christ, the perfect king. He's a king who didn't try to save face. He's a king who didn't try to look religious. He's a king who actually lost his reputation when he hung on the cross. And Jesus was a king who always trusted God the Father in his trials. And we see him there in the garden pouring his heart out before the Father, weeping and praying, always following the Father's will perfectly. Jesus is a king who tore down the religion of his day. He never looked at outward appearance, but he ate dinner with the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is a king who's provided victory for us by taking the penalty of our sin upon himself and rising from the dead in victory. Now, Jesus is a king you can trust to save you to the uttermost. Oh, Redeemer Church, I'll leave you with this. Don't be a fool like King Saul. Instead, wait on God. Instead, repent of your sins to God. It's never too late. Don't go another day. If you've never trusted in Jesus to save yourself, do that today. If you're a believer and you're in some unrepentant sin, don't let the sun go down. Don't go to bed without repenting of your sin. A Redeemer Church, act in faith. And Redeemer Church, have a relationship with God. There's nothing more important than a relationship with Him. Turn to Him and get that right. Well, friends, that's the wisest thing we can do today and any day. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how great you are. You are faithful to us. You love us and you care for us. You are worthy of all worship. Father, you are worthy of all praise and devotion. Oh, Father, draw us nearer to you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.